Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name is Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they want to keep safe in a time capsule. They can pick four things that they love or treasure, but they also have to pick something they regret in their life, so it can be buried and forgotten. My guest in this episode is the fabulous actor Kevin McNally, most famous, I suppose, for playing the bosun Joshua Mee Gibbs in all five Pirates of the Caribbean films. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. No, he wasn't in Titanic, but he's been in nearly everything else, starting on television in 1976 with I, Claudius, and following it up with such things as Survivors, The Duchess of Duke Street, Poldark, Masada, Doctor Who, Bottom, A Bit of Fry and Laurie, the sitcom Dad, The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, Shackleton, Spooks, Life on Mars, Marple, Downton Abbey, 24 and Designated Survivor with Kiefer Sutherland, Dust Boot, Dad's Army, The Lost Episodes, where he played Captain Mannering, and of course, Midsummer Murders. Twice. You want some more? Okay, he's made over 30 films, such as the Bond classic, The Spy Who Loved Me, The Long Good Friday, Cry Freedom, Sliding Doors, Spice World, Johnny English, and Valkyrie with Tom Cruise. On stage, he played Claudius in Hamlet with Jude Law. He was in Ivanov in London with Kenneth Branagh, a performance that got him nominated for an Olivier Award. He was in The Lady in the Van with Maggie Smith and Alan Bennett, and he played King Lear at The Globe. Even his video game, Assassin's Creed 3, was a bestseller. God, I hate him. I mean, to put it bluntly, he is one of the best actors this country has ever produced. And he's done it whilst retaining the ability to go down the local shops without anyone making a fuss. So, let's find out what Kevin McNally would like to put in his time capsule. We'll start with the first object, okay. which is my Radegold medal. 
Mm. Um, there's a tangential object to that because what, one of the things that happened that one of the things that I, I think is so unfair about the whole awards system is that I not only won the most promising actor, but I won the best actor. And I thought, well, that's really bizarre, isn't it? Because there's, there's a spare award there for somebody else to be congratulated if congratulations are apprised at this institution. But incidentally, um, I'm sure if you ever went to um, Phil Croskin, a very good friend of mine I was at drama school, and asked him to do the same thing, he would want to time capsule one of his awards because it's a real demonstration of how different times are. Because he won the award for the most improved voice. It was the Arthur Wantner Award for the most, <laughs> most improved voice. And in those uneducated days, uh, the Arthur Wantner Award for the most improved voice was an ashtray, um, <laughs> which is something you would never come across now. And incidentally, uh, although I got a gold medal for my, my best actor, Bancroft, what I won for the, for the most promising was a lighter. So, I mean, it seemed that all, all awards were sort of um, nicotine-related back in the <laughs> 70s. Were they sponsored? They were sponsored, by, but Bronson, I actually... Um, Ronson took me and Pippa Gardot, who won the, uh, the Ronson Award for Most Promising Actor and Actress, to um, the Playboy Club in London. It was very, uh, very sweet. And I remember um, the woman who... Uh, was running the award, was, was most solicitous that I come and see her in Tunbridge Wells, but I never quite got the courage to go and do that. I live in Tunbridge Wells. Oh, well, then you might know her. You'll, see, <laughs> you'll see her wandering around with a bag full of... There's a lot of crazy old actors wandering around. I bet there are. <laughs> Interestingly enough, my, uh, my Bancroft uh, gold medal was enforced into a time capsule by my father for many years. Because when I won it, it was and still remains to this day the only gold medal issued by any institution that actually is two ounces of solid gold. Even Olympic gold medals are, are plated. Um, so it was this, this lump of two ounces of solid gold. Well, my dad knew at the time that, you know, it would take a while for my work to get going and he knew I had a, a propensity for, for beer and weed. So um, he immediately <laughs> confiscated it off me and I never saw it again until he died, and I took all of his stuff out. I went, oh, God, I won the gold medal. And uh, it now resides um, um, by my bed, which is lovely. So the most promising award, a lighter from Ronson. Mm. Have you still got that? No. God knows where that is. They're quite collectible. Ronson. Well, it would be because it was a rather swish sort of um, avocado shape. Perhaps my dad should have confiscated that as well, and I could have discovered it. <laughs> In 2010, as a more responsible individual. <laughs> well, at least the value of gold is going up. As a result of winning that, did that open all the doors for you, do you think? Well, you know, um, I had a pretty good go out of the gate when I left drama school. It was, of course, of such a different world, both socially and work-wise. I mean, if you were lucky enough to have any degree of talent, as you will remember... I used to be every other week at the Acton Hilton rehearsing, um, you know, by Claudius or Poldark or Touches of Duke Street. And, and of course, it was fascinating because it, there was no differentiation between drama and live entertainment. So you'd be sitting there watching the, the cast of Rent-A-Ghost and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, all, all the variety people. Uh, I think we must take a break there for a moment because... Yeah. Um, Miss, Hiya. My, Miss, Mrs. McNally has turned up. Hello. From how are you? Nice to see you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice to see you. We're recording a podcast. Oh, hello, podcast. There we are. <laughs> <laughs> just, me in. just carry on, yes. Well, I might do you both. <laughs> well, 
Um, the, yes, so you, you would mix with all these variety people, and so there was a real sense of continuity, you know. Mm. I mean, I get the sense... Um, for instance, I was in uh, L.A. this year doing a supposedly pilot season in which absolutely nothing occurred for reasons that we may go into later. But there was a sense of being involved in the community, and I get uh, the, the acting community because one was there at rehearsals and, you know, you'd have breakfast with people and they were on different shows. But I get the sense that young actors now sit at home largely in isolation and um, perhaps trying to seek other people to do to create their own work with them workshops. And I know that I personally do actors' uh, workshops both in the States and here. And I realise the great responsibility of that because it's possibly the only work um, and, and involvement with other actors and conversations about acting that they will have over the course of three to four months. I must tell you, it's a pathetic story to tell against myself, but I went for the entire month of February to Los Angeles. Uh, you know, I got my jacket and some shirts and a nice pair of shoes for my meetings. And I sat there um, slowly increasing my capacity to drink rosé wine in the, the Americana <laughs> on brand in Glendale, and the one meeting I got was from England, and it was a self-tape for an American <laughs> show. So that's, uh, which I didn't get. So, um, you know, that, that, is the, that is the ghastly and lonesome life of, of an actor these yes. days, I think. Yes, we would certainly go for a drink after a casting. Yes, yeah, no, absolutely, yes. Yeah, I'd often go for a drink before a casting. <laughs> but, of course, that's not only to do with the profession, it's to do with the world. And, in fact, one thing that inspires me about um, what you're talking about here, about this time capsule, is um, how unimportant objects were to me when I was younger. You know, you, they're sort of things that you collect in later life, although I am thinking of more and more. The other thing uh, that is, of course, I constantly remind young people about was the sort of responsibility of friendship back in those days. Like, you, if you arranged to meet somebody on Thursday at 7 o'clock in the pub, you had to turn up, you know. Mm. There was no texting two minutes later and saying, I can't go. You had to plan your life yes. because the banks were open at not at lunchtime and they closed at 3. They seemed to open only at times when unemployed people who had no money could go and get any money. And if you didn't have any money at the weekend, you had a very quiet weekend. I can remember once trying, leaving Rada at 5 o'clock on a Friday and... Um, trying to borrow five pounds off Trevor Eve so I could, <laughs> I could um, get the train back home to Birmingham and, and be fed and stuff. And he very wisely uh, issued me a nolly prosequi and uh, I didn't get back to Birmingham. Nobody's again. ever borrowed five pounds off Trevor Eve. I don't, <laughs> I don't think he has ever been known to happen. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to take your gold medal, your Bancroft gold medal. Right. Is that named after Anne Bancroft? No, it wasn't named Bancroft. It would have been impressive, no. wouldn't it? It would have been. No, it, it was named after Son of Sir Henry Bancroft or something. Sir I, I Henry. would imagine, I would imagine, I don't know whether he was an actor or whether he was, certainly not an actor I've heard of. But they, they were always called Sir Henry, though, weren't they? Oh, yes, you had to be Sir Henry. I, I thought of calling myself Sir Henry McNally early on, but I was told <laughs> it wasn't allowed. That's sir as a first name. Yes, Very Sir good. Henry McNally is hyphenated. <laughs> Rather good idea. Very good. I wanted to be uh, Watlington P. Risborough. Oh, lovely. Do you like that name? I do, I do. It's a signpost on the M40. Is it really? It's the village of Watlington, Princess Risborough. But I think Watlington P. Risborough. We used to, I think that's great. You would have had great fun at drama school. Me and my old friend Jimmy Saxon, who's sadly dead now, we used to make up radio announcements. <laughs> and uh, it was usually place names, and we'd say, 
this afternoon, searching the fish with Ashbilla de la Zouche and Milton Mowbray. <laughs> I was seriously considering um, what a pretentious little twat I must have been, calling myself Kevin Curtis with a K. Oh. Um, I, I rather thought that was a rather rather spiffy scream name, but... Uh, yeah, KK. There's only one K missing. There's only one K... <laughs> <laughs> Good Kevin Curtis, yes, I know. <laughs> All right, that, well, let's put that in the time capsule. It's okay. your first item. Yes. I, I bet you must be very proud of it. Uh, yes, well, not so much proud of it, but it certainly reminds me of a, of a very fascinating time in my life. I was far too young, really, to go to drama school. I, I would have, if I chose now, I would have gone later because I... I went in as a 17-year-old and came out as a 19-year-old and I knew nothing apart from a rather nice breathing technique. I mean, that was it, really. But it's and useful. But I know what you mean about it would have been useful to learn the business as well. I came out at 19, having been at school and gone to, gone to a, a repertory theatre and then gone to drama school. So I was then asked to play certain roles and it was just all guesswork on my part because all I knew was... Um, was being a child and training to be an actor. That's more sort of what I mean about a little yes. bit of life experience. And it's been very interesting to me that as, as life has gone on, I can, I can sort of, and I, I work on this with my students when I work, of, of, I can see what a blank page I was when I, I, I started out. Mm. Some people may say I'm something of a blank page now, but um, that's <laughs> just a, different a few reasons. blobs on it. Yes, yeah, there's, there's a few blobs and a, and a few sort of creaky bits here and there, and a few experiences. That come. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fascinating to look back. Yes. Well, okay. Well, let's do that by uh, thinking of a, a second item to go in. Well, I'm not a great one for possessions, but I do remember. It's interesting the things that do stay with you, and you know all the moves and all the things I've had. I have on my piano a uh, a wonderful sculpture of a of a orangutan, I think it is, and it's absolutely beautiful. And it was the first artwork I ever bought, and it's the only one I still have with me, really, because in nineteen eighty seven, maybe was it, I went to Zimbabwe to make the film Cry Freedom, and. Um, I'd made a few films, but it was the first time I had a part in a serious, big movie. Mm. And um, the first time I'd been, well, maybe the second time, I'd been to a really different culture. And so I bought this. Um, I, I, I actually found, and I used to have a few of the stones, actually. There was, there's this field with this extraordinary... Um, deep red stones that have, that have been unearthed over, over the years. And it was one of these big stones that this artist took and turned into this statue. And I went to the, the field of stones, as it's called, and I, and I brought some of the original back. I don't think that I have them anymore. And because it was such, the first time I bought a piece of art and it was connected to, you know, a big film and uh, cultural change, um, I've kept it with me all these years. In fact, I'm going to show it to you now. Yeah, OK, Actually, great. Going to get yeah, it. I'd love it. I might take a picture of it. Is that all right? Yes, of course. Um, sadly, it's a teeny bit chipped because for many years, and a flat I had in the Lambert room was used as a doorstop. <laughs> oh, no. But there it is. Oh, my word. So that's a nice one, isn't it? That is brilliant, yeah. Yes, I suppose you could, uh, orangutan gorilla. 
Yes, a, maybe a gorilla, there. monkey, I don't know, ape of some kind. It's rather beautiful, but here, you know, it's where the door was slammed during many nights with my then girlfriend, I imagine. <laughs> um, so th- that would be the second one. And of course, that was an extraordinary time. It was an amazing film, wasn't it? It was an amazing film. I mean, it wasn't a, a success after Gandhi. And I think the, the film made a, a primary error that you wouldn't make now is that, and, and, it, and it's, it's pinpointed in a moment later in the film, um, they juxtapose the um, massacre, the sh- what is it, the Sharpeville Massacre, mm. um, and intercut it with that lovely white family rather glowing in an aeroplane escaping from uh, to Lesotho. And um, I, I think it's a rather jarring image now that, that uh, okay, well, all of these people are getting killed, but at least our okay. white family have got away. <laughs> so I think that, that, that's, that's slightly, uh, slightly tone deaf as it's a moment in the film. But it was, yeah, a, yeah. It was, a, it was a, you know, a, a wonderful film. And, and, and Dickie was very passionate about um, human rights and about apartheid and... Um, I think he made it for all the the best reasons. It was wonderful to uh, re-hook up with Kevin Klein, who I, I'd seen in the theatre in, in America. He'd seen me in the theatre in uh, in England, and um, to meet Denzel Washington as a young as a young actor. And I learned so much from a Dickie about about film acting. Yeah, he was a wonderful. He was a great director. Was Richard Attenborough a wonderful director? Yeah. Because he had that. You know, he came from being an actor. You know, very often you do work with film directors. I quite like working with film directors who, who have been editors, actually, because they, they don't make you shoot unnecessary stuff. Because <laughs> they know what they're going to use and they know what they're not. Uh, um, the real problem, I think, sometimes comes from people from other parts of the business who who don't understand the process of acting. And more importantly, haven't bothered to try to learn it, you know, because they can, they can be a bit of an impediment, directors. They can get in the way sometimes, yeah. 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 I, I remember Michael Gambon once saying, I met him in the street, and I said, what are you doing? He said, he said oh, I'm, doing, uh, I'm doing The Caretaker by Harold Pinter. And I said, that's very good. How, how's that going? He said, well, I've just sacked the director. I said, oh, why did you do that? He said, well, Pint doesn't need a director, does it? It needs a sort of benign stage manager. I said, well, I guess it does if you just say it clearly and understand what you're saying. Yeah. Um, you don't need any sort of ideas imposed upon it. No, there may be an argument that all theatre only needs a benign stage manager. Well, of course, theatre began with benign stage managers. I mean, I think the role of director... I don't think really came into its own until after the war. I, funny enough, I did this reading last week, and it is fascinating. We had to do a lot of songs. I said, you know, we can all sit down as experienced actors, pick up the script in front of an audience, and we can probably, having read it a couple of times, make a good deal of sense mm-hmm. out of it, and, and maybe pick a few moments, you know, when we get upset, or, yeah. or a moment, you know, we know where the jokes are. I said, please, let's work on the music, you know, because that's what will sell this. Thing. And it is remarkable when you do things like that. Our first reading, I mean, very often it's pretty much there. You know? yeah. I mean, it's a bit about tuning and finding and, and honing after that. Mm. I always say in those situations that either you just do it the first time or if you or work on it properly. Mm. Because it, the, it's like takes in film. Between one and seven, they get really bad. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yes. They, they, they're really awful. And a week's rehearsal on something is is pretty much just taking all the life out of it yeah. before you put a new life back into it again, I think. What I love is that you've done, you've had this fabulous jump 
in your career, constantly between really quite serious drama, heavy drama, really, I would say, and then very light comedy. Yes, yes. I've suffered from that somewhat. Um, there's a wonderful tale from my life, which is in, in 1991, I was up for a, a TV show called Full Stretch Comedy by Dick Clement, Neil and Frenning. And uh, the late and dearly uh, missed Antonio Berg was directing and wanted me to play the lead in it. And the powers that be at the BBC said, oh, no, we can't have Kevin McNally playing the lead in this. He said, he's a serious, dramatic actor. We need someone with a light comic touch. And she said, well, I can tell you, he does have a light. Well, we haven't seen it. So I did the show, and although it was never revived, it was, it was successful. It was at a time when television was changing, and they thought 8 million viewers wasn't enough for a TV show, <laughs> which is what we got. And then five years later, uh, a director came to me and said, I'm doing this, this really great cop show called Frontiers. We want you to play one of the leads in it. Um, but you've got to come and audition. And uh, I said, why? I said, because the, the head of ITV has said, no, Kevin McNally's a light comedian. He can't, uh, he can't do drugs. Same bloke. Same no. bloke. Oh, no. uh, so it, it is hard, as I'm sure you know, to convince them that the, the, the name actor doesn't come with a qualified heavy or light afterwards. No, it's very strange, isn't yeah. it? I mean, a good actor knows what he's in, doesn't he? He knows what it is he's, he's being he's expected asked to, to do. To supply, yeah. And, but also, uh, quite a lot of comedy nowadays is probably even more realistic than much drama. Well, um, yes, absolutely. And um, there, there is a crossover there. But my feeling, I mean, I played King Lear two years ago, and that's full of jokes. At the Globe. Yes, yeah. at the Globe. But I've never been to see a successful play, a drama, that doesn't have moments of levity in it. And I've never seen a successful comedy that doesn't move you at some point. So, yeah. you know, the, the idea of it's one thing or another is, is completely antiquated and yes. uh, wrong, really. There's a great Ralph Richardson story that I love, which I can't remember who the actress was, but they were doing some play. And this uh, woman on the first night got this incredible laugh on this line. And from then on, nothing. Because <laughs> she was trying, obviously. Um, and one day she went into uh, Sir Ralph's uh, dressing room and said, what, what, why am I not getting that laugh anymore? And he said, he said, oh, darling, you've just got to throw it away. And I don't know why I did an impression of John Gielgud there. Because um, <laughs> you can't do Ralph. Yes, I can't do Ralph. Richardson. You've just got to throw it away. So she went, right, that's what I'm going to do. She went on stage and she threw this line away. Silence. <laughs> and so she's sitting depressed in the dressing room, taking her makeup off. <clears> and the door creaks open and Ralph's head comes in and says, but you've got to know where to throw it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, brilliant. it's very hard to give people advice on comedy. I think it's yeah. an instinctive thing, isn't it? You've done a lot of comedy and you know... You're doing... Are you going on tour? Yes. Doing yeah. Radioactive? We have done it, in fact. Oh, you've moment. done it? Yes, oh, we've right. done it. And a, and a wealth of material from it. An enormous many, amount of material. How many series did you oh, do? Oh, we did seven. Yeah, yeah. Right. Seven series, so it's a lot. We did that with the Hancocks, of course, the, uh, the radio Hancocks. We they, they were great, those Hancock recordings, I thought. Fantastic cast, and everybody did it really brilliantly well. I think there was a sense amongst us all of a, a, a united sense of we are, we are lovingly recreating an original. I know that when uh, Kevin Eldon and I were then asked to do the Dad's Army television uh, thing, he, he, I, I'm going to have to swear um, badly You can here. swear. Um, but he phoned me up and he said, I hear you're playing Mannering, and they've just offered me Corporal Jones. I said, I know. I said, it's quite 
It's quite uh, disturbing, isn't it? Because people are going to either really love this or say, how dare you do this? And he said, oh, I don't care about all that, Kevin. He doesn't really care about things like that. Uh, he said, but what I want to know is it's going to be a loving recreation and not some sort of reimagining country. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I think you can rest assured that it's, it's on the loving recreation side, uh, which and, and when we saw the set for it, of course, they had done such a job in, in completely recreating the look of the show, which yes. I'm very pleased about. Yes, and you had lovely Robert Bathurst. Robert Bathurst doing, you know, I mean, being more John Lemez than John Lemez was. It's he's extraordinary yeah, the way he does that. It's just yes. wonderful. It was all. I, I also because I wasn't really short enough to play Mannering. I, I just stood next to him all the time. Yeah. So I look short because he's such <laughs> a tall man. <laughs> you <yeah>. look tiny. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> short, fat, round man. Uh, um, I suppose this might bring me on to my the third thing that I'd like to keep. When I got offered uh, to do Hancock on the radio, I was so thrilled. I was actually walking through um, an old battleground in Virginia from uh, the Civil War, and um, I got this incredibly long, complex text from Neil Pearson, who created the whole idea. I suppose trying to persuade me to take some time off from my Hollywood life to do a little bit of radio. And I just sent back, yes, because... (laughs) I have loved Tony Hancock uh, ever since I can remember. Mm. And he told me a wonderful story. He said when he took the idea on the 60th anniversary of the first Hancock radio being transmitted, he went to the BBC and said, I've got these 20 scripts that you know you can't hear. Could we do them? And they said, we will do them on one condition. You have to get the perfect Hancock. And he went, oh, well, this is going to be six months' work, isn't it? Meeting people and arranging people and and auditioning people. And that night, he went to a party where he met Andy Hamilton. Mm. And Andy said, you look a bit concerned, Neil. What's what's going on? And he said, well, he told him the story of what the the conditions the BBC had said. And apparently Andy said to him, look no further, it's Kevin McNally. And uh, and he he said, in fact, you can't get him to not do Hancock, even when he's not playing Hancock. So, you know, got (laughs) to... So uh, that was just a wonderful thing. And I can verify that story because Andy's told it to me himself. Oh, has he really? That's wonderful. <laughs> Which wonderful. is gorgeous. Years before, I had tried, I had commissioned two young writers to do a, a Hancock biography. And it never happened. And in retrospect, I'm glad it didn't because the opportunity that Neil gave me was to do... Um, Hancock at his best, Hancock when he was in his element, and not to do, you know, the tears behind the clown, cliché, you know, he was an alcoholic, he died young, that sort of thing. But those lovely people, uh, Nick and Beth, uh, for my birthday that year, they found a um, and framed a signed photograph of Tony Hancock, which I have upstairs in my study along with um, Robert Vaughan, uh, for some bizarre reason, and uh, I did find, after many years searching, uh, Oliver Hardy and, and Stan Laurel on the same piece of paper. Wow. Um, so those are my, my three comic comedians' autographs. Mm. So I think I would take, I would like uh, Hancock's autograph to go with me. Ah, the signed photograph. Yeah, it's one fabulous. It's actually not a signed photograph. It's a photograph, for some bizarre reason, he wouldn't sign photographs. He didn't want to sign photographs, and he would only sign in pencil. So I had this for years. But then, I've just remembered, um, 
B.T. Edney, darling B.T. Edney, whose mother was in the Punch and Judy Man with Tony Hancock, uh, said that she was clearing out a lot of her mother's stuff and um, she found a signed picture uh, in ink of Tony Hancock and she gave it to me. It's wonderful. Oh Little did she know she could have charged me anything between two and three thousand pounds for the picture, but she just <laughs> gave it to me. You so maybe I'll, to I'll, I'll tuck that in behind the, uh, the other autograph of Tony yeah, Hancock. Yeah, lovely. Mm. Uh, I loved Tony Hancock as a performer. Oh. I mean, it, it's one of those things that as a child you... You're listening to it without any expertise, but an absolute knowledge that you're listening to a master at work. Yes, and you know, I'll, I'll never forget the fun. My dad introduced me to Hancock when they were when they were not so much on the radio, but when they were repeated on television in the mid '60s. And I remember him as this cantankerous old, um, rather doer, depressed bloke. But it was years later, 1980. Mel Smith asked me to come round to his house. And uh, he'd had a friend at the BBC who he'd asked to go in and they raided the archives with a, with a, a VHS. Wow. And he said, just get me as many Hancocks as you can. And, and the guy recorded about six episodes of Hancock's Half Hour, totally illegal, of course. And he said, I've got them. We'll have a Hancock's Half Hour night. Now, we had been listening to the, the, the LPs, the discs, all that, but you couldn't see Hancock. I hadn't seen an episode of Hancock since the mid-60s. So we sat down and watched, um, I think it was Sid in Love was the first one we watched. And I couldn't believe what an energetic performer he was. I'd forgotten how up he was and how, you know, how, how, uh, how full of energy and precision he was. I'd, I'd rather thought of him as this doer character. Mm. His range was wonderful. And uh, he's still part of life. I told you I had this terrible cold over the last three days, so I sat down, made poor Mrs. McNally watch the cold. Because whenever I have a cold, I watch Hancock in the cold. <laughs> and it cheers me up something wrong. <laughs> so only last night. I spent most of my youth listening to Saturday morning children's favourites or something. Oh, right. And they always played the clip of him being the pilot, test oh, pilot. The, one, another wonderful Hancock experience in uh, 2017, I think it was, the 100th anniversary of the RAF um, Somebody got wind that my dad was in the RAF and that I did Hancock. So I was invited, very strangely, to the Royal Albert Hall to perform that sketch with, um, with Robin. Um, you know, a nice small... Who's an extraordinary Kenneth Williams. Extraordinary Kenneth Williams. I mean, he is Kenneth Williams. He really is embodied Kenneth Damn near as annoying as Kenneth Williams as well. No, I love him. He's wonderful. But to perform this little sketch, three of us in, in the, the, the small, intimate comedy environment of the Royal Albert Hall was, um, was really quite something. But I have to say, I think we smashed it. I think we did. For, it, internally, for me, a lovely tribute for my dad who introduced me to it and his time in the RAF. And it was just great. Was that during the war, your father in the RAF? No, he was in Malaya uh, in the 50s, 53 to 55, I think he was there. Mm. And in fact, um, when he retired... He said, I've been working at this place now for years and they've given me a bloody watch and it's not even gold. So I'm going to give you my gold watch that I bought in Malaya. Um, lovely little thing. But I always wear it when I play Hancock. It's like, a, I'm not a superstitious man, but I always wear it because it's from the period, it's from the time, it's connected to my dad, etc. Mm -hmm. So uh, I love uh, having that. And I do hope I get to don that watch again someday. Okay, lovely. So, so we're going to put... Photograph of Hancock. Yes. Pencil signing underneath. Yes. And, and the signed photograph as well. And the, the other one as well. So one, two of them. One item on it. Yeah. 
We'll put them in the one bag. So we've got Cry Freedom. We've got yes, we've got the hand sculpture, the medal. We've the, got the sculpture, amazing yeah. from from Cry Freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what was the first? And the gold medal. The gold medal. Yeah, yeah. As you said, <laughs> if I was listening. <laughs> <laughs> come on, keep up. Come on, come on. It's your, it's your bloody podcast. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so we've got one more jolly. Okay. What you like, right? And then, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm. So, what do you think? What do you reckon? Right. This seems a good point in the podcast to take a short break for an advert. We'll be back shortly. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Okay, welcome back. Let's find out what else Kevin McNally would like to put in his time capsule. I was thinking about this only the other day, doing, doing the, the country and western singing for this reading and having done the, the Hancock radios and Dad's Army. You know, for all the great fortune I've had of going to Hollywood and doing five massive Pirates of the Caribbean films and filming away in TV series, the things I really remember and I really enjoyed are those tangential things that take you slightly out of your comfort zone. So going and trying to recreate Hancock is a very important part for me. And I think the first time I did that was in 1982. A friend of mine, Malcolm Mackay, wrote a play called Pistols, about the sex pistols. And we did it in Plymouth, and I was playing Sid Vicious. And, and we performed most of their songs in the during the play, um, and we really got quite tight as a band, uh, and, you know, apart from Sid Vicious, they were quite a really tight band, good drummer and uh, excellent guitarist and Steve Jones, and John Lydon, of course, Rick Cotton played John Lydon, who, um, you know, people think of this anarchist punk, but he's actually far more related to vaudeville and music hall, I think, mm. than he is to anything else. But as a result of that, Edward Tudor Pole, who I'd been at drama school with, Ten Pole Tudor, who, of course, had been in the Sex Pistols film, was playing a gig at the Marquee, the old Marquee. And he said he wanted us to play as spots, Sex Pistols on tour, they used to call themselves, and open for him. And we were like, no, wait a minute, we're not going to stand up in the Marquee pretending to be the Sex Pistols. They will literally rip us limb from limb. <laughs> but I said, I said, oh, come on, when are you ever going to get to be a, a punk rocker and play to a punk audience... I mean, remember, punk was only five years old at that point, so mm. they were still, it was still the original people. 
and play um, and play at the marquee, the old marquee. So we did it, and we walked on stage, and I think we started with bam, 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 down, 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 anarchy in the UK, and utter silence, of course, utter silence. And then halfway through the song, somebody started pogoing, and then we went on to the next one, which I think was a ding, 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 pretty vacant. Wow. And they they had like been transported because we had been doing the play a long time, and we were pretty darn good by that point. And we knew we got them when they... St- I went forward for a, a little bass solo at one point and a hail of sputum <laughs> hit us from the, from the audience. And I, and I remember turning around with, with, with spit <laughs> dripping from my eyebrow and, and winking at Rick going, we've got them, we've got them. <laughs> yeah. um, so I would say my fourth object would be a, a little container of, um, of punk um, phlegm. I think, to remind me of that first time I stepped out of my comfort zone and did something else. And they've always been the most satisfying uh, things to do. Yes, because I remember coming across you in London in a brief gap in the middle of all the Pirates of the Caribbean films, uh, and you were saying, God, isn't it lovely to wear a cardi? It stuck with me. It's one of those right. lessons that you may be thinking, well, this man's doing these enormous Hollywood films. Yeah. He's in the Dominican Republic or whatever yes, yes, for yes. months and months. Yeah. It must be marvellous. You yeah. said, oh, I'm so sick of hot weather. <laughs> if I see another rum punch, I'll throw up. <laughs> I have a very funny story about rum punch, actually. Um, when I came back, after we filmed two and three back to back. So I was in the Caribbean and L.A. for months and months and months. And I came back from one particular uh, trip to uh, the Bahamas, and I was having the most awful uh, stomach uh, and body problems. It was really terrible. And I went to my doctor and I said, "Um, Doctor, I've got cancer. Um, I've obviously got cancer. You should see what's going on on my insides. He said, well, you know, let let me be the judge of that. What are the symptoms? (laughs) So I told him. And he said... "Um, Tell me, Kevin, have you had any lifestyle changes recently? I went, no, not that I can think of. He said, forgive me if I'm wrong, but you've just been in the Caribbean making two pirate films, haven't you? I said, oh, yes, yes, I have, yeah. He said, tell me, did you you drink a lot of rum punch while you were there? I said, well, yes, we drank drank a lot of rum punch every day. He said, well, I'll tell you what, you go home. Don't have a rum punch for two weeks and see if the symptoms persist. And of course, I was instantly better. And I made no connection between this influx, of, this terrible influx of, of orange juice, mango, and, and sugar-based alcohol um, as, as, as affecting my digestive system in any way at all. So, uh, yes, that's why they make holidays in the Caribbean only two weeks. Mm. Being there for five weeks is a disaster. <laughs> I love that also that, that the thing is not judged by its scale. It's no, judged no. by the job. Yeah, absolutely. And that's sort of the way to run a career, I think, isn't it? I think so. Um, I don't think being impressed by the physical scale of things is a route to happiness in any way at all, I don't think. Um, I, was, I was doing a convention in Liverpool at the weekend and I was doing a panel and somebody brought this up about the happiness of a career. And... The, and I mean, the, the extreme version is, is that you meet young people and, they, and you say, what do you, what do you want? I want to be famous. I want to be a star. And the first question is to ask them to define what that is. And, of course, nobody can define what that is. Um, and it, it seems to me 
to be wanting all of the worst things of being an actor and not the actual best things of being mm. an actor. I mean, can you imagine being a soap star? I mean, you're not actually paid that much money to shore yourself up and, you know, put all the lights and security around, but you are people's property. They have every right to come and prod and poke you in the street. Mm. And um, I would imagine that's an awful way to live. Johnny Depp describes it as the circus that he has to go through to live his life, uh, which I think is a very good, uh, very good description of it. Mm. Anyway, so I was saying this at the weekend and how I, I could go through my life through total anonymity. And then, <laughs> it's funny when you say these things, I then went into town to do a few things yesterday and was stopped by six people for a selfie. Um, I, I'm absolutely out of the blue. Never happens to me. <laughs> but six selfies in the street. But I'm always really surprised by that. Yes. Um, yes, I've always regarded you as someone who's managed to do an extraordinarily public career without anybody ever noticing it was you. No, I know. It's true. People tend maybe to recognise you, but have a sort of respectful distance. Also probably a bit embarrassed that they don't know what your name is, so they can't come up and say, hello, Kevin. So they, you know, they, they have that. But my dad used to love to play a game when I'd go and visit him in Western Superman. We'd go to the supermarket and I'd say to him, you know, nobody recognises me. He says, no, not a lot of people recognise you, but a lot of people stop when you've gone past, turn around with a quizzical look on their face. Uh -huh. So I think that happens a lot when people go, was that, do I know that bloke? Where do I know him from? Yeah, where do I know him from? Hmm. I've, I've often had things like, are you my mate uh, George's friend from, uh, from Woking? You go, no, I'm not. <laughs> no. Yes, you are. No, really, I'm not. And then it turns out you are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, things like that do happen sometimes. I remember once being on a bus and a woman saying, hi, Kevin, um, and, I, and I went to the diner, I, I named two shows that I'd been in. Yes, you'll know me from Diana and this. And she went, yes, I know, I was the costume woman on them. I was like, oh, I'm totally oh, sorry. No. I didn't recognise you. You know, talk about being a dick, yeah. you know, being caught out. Mm. Yeah. The moment you'd say to someone, don't you know who I am? Mm. Years ago, I was, the, one of the first performances I ever did in London was at the Old Vic with Anthony Quayle. And he knew I was very nervous and he obviously recognised this because just before we went on and we entered together laughing, that was our entrance, Right. and he said to me, um, all right, and I went, yeah, 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 <laughs> and he said, uh, he said, yeah, so there's, a, there's an old drunk getting on a bus and I thought, oh, shut up, <laughs> I'm just about to go on stage at the old Vic, shut up, and he said, yeah, so um, it's an old drunk getting on a bus. And, uh, and the woman says to him, I'm sorry, sir, you, you can't come on here in that condition. And he says, I beg your pardon, do you know who I am? And the woman says, no. And he says, then how do you know it's me? <laughs> <laughs> and he did that, and then he said, we're on. Great. Walk me on stage, so we Good walked man. on laughing. Good man. It's a Good lovely man. thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is nice when, particularly when you're young, when, when older people are... Um, Kind to you. I, I had a very lucky experience when I started in that one of my first jobs was I, Claudius. I was 19 years old. Amazing. And, Amazing. And I, so I'm in a cast with John Hurt, Brian Blessed, who I saw at the weekend. I was, I was reminiscing about this with him. Uh, <laughs> Sean Phillips, uh, George Baker. I mean, this is... Derek Jacobi. Derek Jacobi, of course. Of course. A wonderful experience. And I remember going in, it, was my, it wasn't my first job, but it was probably my third job. And I was in the rehearsal room and 
the, the floor manager came out and said, um, we've got a blackboard in the corner. If you'd like to read it, it'll give you a call time every day. And I said, oh, well, I, I said, I won't be bothering that. She went, no, you must get you. I said, no, no, you'd misunderstand. Look at these actors. Do you think I'm not going to come in at 10 o'clock every morning and mm. sit and just watch these people work? Because this is so much more useful to me than two and a half years at drama school. Mm. And, uh, you know, I learned so much in that process. I still don't think I was very good. And I remember years later meeting Derek Jacobi, and I said, I've got to ask you a question. I said, you had a scene in I, Claudius, when I was being poisoned and I was sick, and you came in and uh, Patrick Stewart, as Sejana, stopped you, and he said, what are you doing? And you, and you had a line which I thought was, which I thought was, I've come to see Castor, my character. I, I've heard he was ill. But I remember you saying on the day, um, I've come to see Castor, I've heard he's... <laughs> Very bad. I said, did you do that on purpose? He said, no, darling, of course I did. But to this day, I'm sure it was an in-joke from the older members of the company about this rather terrible young actor trying to keep up with these fantastic names. You know. Anyway, it didn't hold me back. Uh, well, I've, I'm going to jump back in our memories of what and say I've got a little file of uh, Punk's Gob. Gob, as it was known, yeah. <laughs> as it was known. Uh, um, actually, it, well, what's it called? I remember seeing um, Hugh Cornwall with the Stranglers once, and he hated the whole punk thing. And I remember him stopping it, stopping a, a song halfway through and shouting at the audience, Stop fucking hacking! <laughs> And he should have known a double intense wave of gob hit him full in the face in his, in his Fender Stratocast. Oh, no, poor man. Yeah. Well, I'm going to take that and put it in the time capsule. Great. Lock it away. Yeah. It's a fantastic memory. I do have another great memory, which is when we were doing Pirates 3, we were filming down in Long Beach uh, in California. And, of course, two films had been out, so it was, it was now hugely successful franchise and at its peak and we went in in the morning and uh, we got changed and stuff and then we went out to sea for the day and we came back and they had had to surround the whole compound with security guards and fences because 5,000 people had turned up uh, to try to get a glimpse of their characters so I you know rather stupidly said to Mackenzie Crook um, I said well why, why don't we just go out and uh, sign a few autographs and um, we went towards the fence and a lot of security guards came and said, you can't do that. So will you come with us? So we went out and they opened the fence and me and Mackenzie walked out in costume and makeup as, you know, two very recognisable characters. And this scream went up and I looked at Mackenzie and I, it was either he or me, I can't remember, said something like, so this is what the Beatles felt like all the time. <laughs> it was the most extraordinary thing for you know, an ordinary bloke, to at least get one experience of, of what that feels like. And mm. it's incredible. It's incredible. I would hate to have it even you know, twice a week or all the time. It must be exhausting and awful. Mm. But really good to get a little glimpse of what that's like. But I rather love the fact that some people... Well, Johnny Depp, I've seen footage of him sort of turning up at hospitals and, yes, and yeah. during filming. And you think, well, that's a lovely power to have. But you can really correctly. affect yeah, yeah. people's lives by yeah. doing something that's quite simple. Yeah, no, absolutely. And he, you know, he's a wonderful man for doing that because he's, you know, humanitarian. You know, he's a... Conversely, of course, one sees so much of that 
like success and power used um, in very negative ways, um, mm. which I'm sure you've seen and I've seen no names, no pactual. Mm. Um, I've always said that fame is water poured into the bucket of you and it will soon find the cracks. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and you see it in people. I, I've seen it in young people. I sit back, you know, on the set going, you've got the wrong end of this completely mm. and this will come back and bite you on the ass in the most terrible way if you mm. keep behaving in this way. Yes, and I, I say to young people that I've spoken to about acting when they say they want to be famous mm. and I say, well, that's easy. And they look at you quizzically and you say, well, you just, you know, go and shoot Trump. Yeah. Nobody will ever forget your name. <laughs> that's what you want, yeah. Yeah, you'll be famous for eternity. Yeah. There's a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a big difference when you work with people. I know I work with a lot of... Uh, I, I mean, I think American actors are maligned somewhat, and they're maligned by their own people, which is why so many English actors are asked to go out and play Americans over there. But there is a sense of training and learning, and there, and there is a, a slight feeling in America that a lot of young actors regard acting as a sort of a personal therapy, which, of course, in television, nobody has any time for. So... Um, I do notice it in some young people. But then, you know, the, the, the usual people I work with, they are trained actors. And however young they are, they, you know, they know the process. And it's usually a very edifying experience mm. to work with. Mm. There are very few actors that uh, really annoy you. No, in very, very few. But enough. <laughs> <laughs> but enough, Michael. <laughs> right. yeah. Well, maybe that leads us nicely on to uh, the one thing that you'd like to lock away. It's going to be my first day in a studio doing this part, in which I was the lead. I was in every scene. And it was, um, it started at 10 o'clock uh, in, in Teddington. And so I, I worked out I had to get up at about um, 8 o'clock if I wanted to get there. So I woke up the next morning, no alarm, and I looked around and it was 9.30. Oh. And I was in Finsbury Park. And I panicked and I... I, I, I got there about an hour later, half ten, and nobody said anything, and we did the day. And uh, at the end of the day, I, I remember I, Michael Apted came up to me and said, you do know that you must never do that in your career again. And I said, absolutely, Michael, absolutely. I will never do that again in my career. And one of the actors in it said, look, I'm driving to the studio in the morning. If you're at Notting Hill Gate at uh, nine o'clock, I will drive you to the studio. So it's great. So I went home, put my alarm clock on. I woke up the next morning, bright sunshine. I looked at the clock. It was five past ten. Oh, my God. I, I felt so sick. I ran out into the street. I shows a different time. I saw this taxi driver and said, please, will you take me to Teddington? I don't have any money. But if you come back tonight, I'll, to this, my, that's my flat, I'll pay you the money. And he, I was obviously so distressed, he did it. He took me to Teddington. Hmm. I turned up and it was, at a, I got there at about a quarter past 11. So I've gone from being half an hour late, warned never to do this again, and it's an hour and a quarter late. And nobody said a thing, but there was an atmosphere. The result was that I didn't work at Thames Television for the next 20 years. Wow. Um, because I'm sure um, everybody there just said, he doesn't work here anymore. He's wasted two hours of our precious studio time. 
This stayed with me all my life. And I was then, <laughs> he mentioned, um, who was that actually you mentioned who told you the joke? Oh, Anthony Quill. Uh, Anthony Quill. I was in Israel uh, doing a thing called Masada with Peter O'Toole. Mm-hmm. Which Anthony Quill was in. Which Anthony Quill was in. And I remember for my first day's filming, I, had a, I, would, I was going to have a scene with um, Peter O'Toole. And the call was seven o'clock. But um, I was in the bar the night before, and a rather nice barmaid got off work, and I still remember her name to this day, and she invited me home with her, which I duly did. I was a young man. It was great. <laughs> um, and I went home with her, and you know, the evening unfolded, and I remember I, you know, I had to get up at seven o'clock, and I asked her to put the alarm clock on, and I woke up, and it was one of those things where you look out at the sun and you go, this is not seven o'clock in the morning. Oh. This time, I was three hours late to be on set with Anthony Quayle and, and Peter O'Toole. Oh. And I remember running down to the hotel and a guy on a phone going, God, where the fuck have you been? I'm just ringing the barmaid now. I've just found out who you went home with. They took me to the set and um, the director was wonderful, a wonderful man. His punishment for me was that my scene would be done later. But a lot of the actors were standing in the back of a big scene in the blazing desert sun. And uh, he decided that I wouldn't be having a stand-in that day. So I stood in a, in a, in a metal Roman helmet and full metal armor for the entire day in the blazing sunshine. And I just thought, well, I just gotta, I've got to suck this up. Because, yeah, you, know, you deserve this it. This is my punishment. And at the end of the day, he went, um, well done. And, uh, and, and we had a drink in the bar afterwards. That's but great. I knew I'd fucked up so badly that... It wasn't, you know, it wasn't just going to be... Well, that moment of being late. Oh, horrible. The way I think that should be represented... Yes. uh, ...is an old-fashioned alarm clock. Yes. Um, All set, but with the tinger not turned on. (laughs) Do you remember those old utility bells? I think I quite often had two alarm clocks because I just never trusted well, them. Um, I, well, I actually, to this day, um, if I have to get up, because I did learn my lesson once and then relapsed briefly in Israel, as I told you. Mm. To this day, and I'm, ne- I'm never late now. I'm never late. I just simply can't abide it. I can't stand people being late. Uh, just through sheer terror and self-preservation. But I will always put my, not my phone and my iPad um, mm. on. The world is divided, though, isn't it, between the people who don't give a toss about being late? Don't know, absolutely. They don't see it at all as being rude or an insult. No, it's remarkable that actually, and I, I've worked with a few people like that, and I'm always amazed by it. And um, I re- I'll never forget um, doing an episode of the New Statesman with uh, uh, Rick Mail, mm. and we were waiting um, for the two writers of that to come in to do a, a run for them, and they were half an hour late. And uh, they came in, and uh, one of them said, Ah, bonjour! (laughs) And Rick turned to me and said, Well, I never knew that was French for sorry I'm late. (laughs) (laughs) So that they could hear. Um, Yes, I I find it incredibly rude, uh, lateness. Or a sign of incredible disorganisation, which it was in my case as a young man. I mean, there was far too much hashish being smoked back in those days. And And what was the name of the girl? Offa. 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 She did make you Offa. 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 Was she worth being late for? She certainly was. Good. That's good news. 
Uh, yes. Oh, yeah. No, I'm going to put, uh, definitely, I'm going to put those awful moments. Of, it'd be the moment when you wake up and realize and look oh. at the alarm clock. Oh, the horror. Funny enough, I, I, a few, many years later, a few years ago, when my son was about 11, I took him in to, he, um, a casting director said, we're, we're doing the, um, the C.S. Lewis uh, films, you know, Line the Witch and Wardrobe, mm. Dawn, I think it was Dawn Treader they were doing. They said, we'd love your boy to come in. And I said, well, I don't know, but if he wants to, I'll let bring him in. So I brought him in, and it was a meeting with Michael Apted. And he said, oh, Kevin, I remember you. <laughs> and he said, are you still working? <laughs> and I went, yeah. And he went, oh. <laughs> he couldn't oh. believe that I had made a 45-year career <laughs> with a start like that. <laughs> Bless him. Had he not noticed no, plainly not. Living in a little world of his own, no doubt. That's <laughs> <laughs> director's for you. Mm. Yes, we've gone full circle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Brilliant. Kevin, it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you. No, you uh, too, Mike. very sweet of you to do this for me. Not at all. It's my pleasure. It's funny, the things you remember, isn't it? You have been listening to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest was Kevin McNally. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes, you can subscribe to this podcast on Acast and all the usual places. If you find the opportunity, please do rate the show and leave a review. And if you want to follow us, we're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You just search My Time Capsule or at MyTCPod or Fenton Stevens. The producer was John Fenton Stevens, and the music was by Pass the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production, which has now come to an end. Hope to see you again soon. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.